0: Hey there space fans. Robin here with the Supercluster podcast. We're back with a new episode this week and uh, it's my favorite episode to do every single year. It's a uh, business. We always invite CNBC space reporter Michael Sheets. I wanted to welcome Michael to the show.
1: Hey guys. Thanks for having me on, Robin. Good to be on the Supercluster podcast and uh, chat a little bit about what's happening in the business world
0: we appreciate you being here. At Supercluster, we typically stay away from business. And uh, I think the main reason for that is because Michael is so good at it. (laughs) And uh, we've become uh, dependent on his coverage. We have had Michael on quite a few times. And I think our first couple times taping the podcast was in New York City at our office in Soho. And I hope that we could do that again someday. We're actually moving the Supercluster office across the street, along with Grand Army, across the street from our Bleecker Street office. So we'll hopefully be back in the studio with Michael and the other Space Reporter crew to tape future podcasts. Michael, I think that there's some breaking news today that I wanted to start off this conversation with. And I we haven't discussed this on the podcast, but Lockheed Martin and Aerojet Rocketdyne, two defense contractors and manufacturers for aerospace that we are all very familiar with. They're among the top companies in the world that do that stuff. And they want to merge. And today the news broke that... The uh, FTC, which is a federal watchdog that protects consumers, is suing to block that merger. Michael, what does that mean?
1: So basically, it means that they see this as a threat to the supply chain that the FTC does in terms of supplying propulsion and uh, rocket engine and spacecraft propulsion parts, especially when it comes to the missile defense industry, how, you know, Aerojet Rocketdyne fits in that piece of everything. I mean, 60% of their sales is in the defense side and 40% is in the space side. So more of a defense company. That is space one, obviously known for some of their other work, but Lockheed Martin is the largest Aerojet customer. So if you track this deal all the way back to when it was announced in late 2020, it made a lot of sense from Lockheed Martin trying to verticalize a lot more of their supply chain. And right. it, it makes a lot of sense because they had just previously before announcing the acquisition highlighted SpaceX as an emerging threat. Uh, especially given their stake in United Launch Alliance and and eating some of their market share there. So it made a lot of sense to try to, you know, compete with SpaceX, which is very heavily verticalized, built from the ground up to be very independent, to try to kind of jump down the supply chain, if you will, and uh, acquire Aerojet. So the deal from Lockheed's competitive perspective made sense. But the, you know, the side of it that the FTC is really concerned about is, selling, you know, missile defense, hypersonic, you know, propulsion, anything in that realm. And the fact that they would be able to really control that supply chain in a lot of ways and, and hurt potentially other competitors uh, and not sell to them or jack prices up, et cetera. Right. And the really other fascinating background here is that this is very much a, a deal that's getting blocked because of the current administration's FTC chair. And why that's interesting is because Northrop Grumman acquired Orbital ATK, a very similar acquisition, very similar pricing, a very similar move back in 2018. So that, that move went through in the prior administration with, without any trouble. And I think that's the biggest thing that you're seeing now is just kind of the timing is hurting Lockheed Martin's acquisition more than anything else. And they're still trying to figure out how they can in, you know, jump up that supply chain. Thank you.
0: And I'll never forget the day when, actually it was a week, when uh, I was covering uh, Orbital ATK and I went to Kennedy one day and they were all Orbital ATK employees. And I think I showed up two days later and everyone had changed their clothes to Northrop Grumman. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you gotta gotta wear the right swag, you know? Yeah, I mean, the changeover was immediate. (laughs) Yeah, I saw Northrop, you know, they wanted to be part of this. Daily launch business. And um, they're flying Antares out of Wallops now, which is really cool, uh, out of Virginia. You had mentioned SpaceX earlier, Michael. Generally speaking, SpaceX's existence causes a ton of waves in the industry when it comes to how other launchers operate. Is it safe to say that ranges from industry veterans to the new guys? Are they all sort of, you know, walking to SpaceX's beat? At times when in their decision making
1: yeah, I mean I, I wouldn't say that everyone's walking to the SpaceX beat, but the, SpaceX obviously you know just crossed a hundred billion dollar market value as a private company, they've been able to just devour so much of the u s market share in terms of orbital launches, mm-hmm. and even you know now with the rideshare program take a take a chunk out of the small sat rideshare small sat dedicated launchers that are all coming online. So yeah, I mean, it's everyone obviously has to plan around them, think about them. But I'd say that they're now in a position. And the reason why you're seeing defense contractors make these kinds of moves is that they're now in a position where like smaller companies in the past would have to think about, okay, how do you navigate around the defense contractors? Where are the contracts we can win? where the you know places in the marketplace that we can really be a disruptor, maybe cut costs and be more efficient. Other companies are starting to treat SpaceX a bit in the same way, and now even the defense contractors are treating SpaceX in that way, you know, as a major influential player. So, the landscape has obviously changed a ton. And now we're in 2022, so if you really go back it's you know 2014, 2015 you start to see that change happen, and then in the last 3 or 4 years SpaceX really solidified themselves as the player in anything orbital, anything space. And so that's yeah, it's it's a new, new paradigm that we're in this year. It's really fascinating, because now that we have that new foundation that's been established, how do we jump off from here? Who are the new disruptors? And obviously, I mean, we'll, we'll probably mention Starship a little bit more later. But That's, you know, SpaceX trying to jump in a a further direction, trying to make another leap in innovation as well as with Starlink. So constantly as a business, you always have to be looking how to innovate, how to continue to diversify, especially once you've got a, a solid foundation underneath you. I want to talk about, I think
0: Morgan Stanley called it a SpaceX alternative, Rocket Lab. Now, when it comes to making noise in the space industry, there's definitely a lot of noise being made by Rocket Lab right now. They are launching consistently. People are paying attention to what they're doing. They've launched NASA payloads. They're launching for Planet, which is another company uh, that people are talking about. Michael, what can you tell us about Rocket Lab's progress over the last couple of years? and are they really a credible threat to SpaceX? or are they there, you know, can they be their own thing and, and take their own slice of the market for a long-term stay?
1: I think Morgan Stanley really nailed a very specific aspect of that report, which is using the word alternative in their recommendation to investors. As much as Rocket Lab might be posturing to compete with Falcon Nine with Neutron, you know, that's a rocket that's two years away at best. Right. And Electron's really gonna be the workhorse for the foreseeable future. Their spacecraft systems business is gonna, you know, grow. So uh, I, they're not a true competitor to SpaceX. And I think that's where, you know, them calling them an alternative really makes the most sense because, okay, you know, pu- investors who want to buy stock in a couple of company on the public markets can't do th- so with SpaceX. So who do you look to if you want to get into kind of the innovative launcher business? And, right. and Rocket Lab's shown that they can innovate. They've shown that they can really push tech to the next level. I mean, the, the fact that we're coming up soon here on uh, the first, you know, recovery via helicopter of an electron booster would be another major jump for for rocket lab now that doesn't mean that they're going to be still going toe to toe with spacex but that's that's something that is you know a huge feather in their cap and and really helps them to start to to accelerate that production cycle so accelerate their launch cadence and then i mean the other big aspect of this is you know, when does Starship truly come online in a commercial sense? Because if it's, you know, we see Orbital launch this year and maybe a couple launches next year and and things start to ramp up there, you know, Neutron really could be coming online at the the same time or even maybe before Starship is in in a launch market sense. And if SpaceX starts to pivot more away from Falcon 9, that leaves a hole for Neutron to fill. Right. Which is a really interesting marketplace dynamic because for for now Falcon 9 is the workhorse in the industry. I mean, it launches way more payload than anything else. But if SpaceX moves away from that, there's certainly use cases where Neutron could be filling that SpaceX wouldn't see it as valuable because you know they've got Starship, but that Neutron's still quite useful for, and and that's a lot of what. Rocket Lab was able to get into the game in the first place, which was these dedicated small sat rides that Falcon 9 couldn't provide.
0: Right. And I think there is some debate about. So let's talk about Transporter 3, which is a SpaceX rideshare mission that was launched recently. And it was particularly of interest, in the tenth flight for that booster to space and back, which plays into, you know. How, how much SpaceX is is launching right now now what is the the case that is being made by these smaller launchers and there's quite a few emerging against SpaceX's small sat packaging and these transporter missions are able to la- launch tiny you know microsats cubesats small sats there's obviously a case there because there's a lot of small launchers emerging we're seeing like you said, Rocket Lab, and we see Astros coming up behind and other companies. So what's that, what's that point that they're making to say, Hey, there is room for us along with a larger launcher that can launch these payloads. Another big point is, do you really want all your eggs in one basket? Do you just want one provider? Absolutely not. Especially when it comes to national security.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, the diversification of the launch industry is is really a great thing. It's I tend to agree with folks that see the launch as more of a supply constrained issue than a demand constrained issue. And, and, and that's even without a lot of these other constellations coming online. The use cases with the, the fact that the competition for pricing is coming down means that more and more people are finding different payloads and spacecraft they want to get in space, which means they need rights to do so. So it, it's, yeah, it's especially fascinating. And from a revenue perspective, too. The Uber analogy is really fascinating because, you know, if you're taking an Uber to a very important client meeting, then yeah, you need to get there on time and you're going to pay extra because if you're late, you're that's costing you money. And that's that's a lot of what a lot of these spacecraft and satellite folks are looking at is, hey, like, if I can get there three months earlier, I'm making money three months earlier. And that's, that's a huge, you know, uh, equation in this whole dynamic in this in this changing marketplace I mean I think it's it's one where obviously SpaceX saw that as a way to put more pressure on some of the small launchers but they, they haven't gone away yet that's for sure and I, I think it's going to be right. very very fascinating I think in 2022 to see kind of who has the legs who can this establish themselves especially now that if several of these guys have gone public you really need to start showing investors pretty quickly that you're serious and you can deliver revenue.
0: Now, when it comes to the payload side, because I think when it comes to human flights is another question, but I'll I'll ask that next. When it comes to a public launcher, this is my extent of understanding of how stocks in the stock market work. When it comes to a satellite launcher or a technology launcher, small sat or orbital, and this company is public, will a disaster or a loss of a payload Is it assumed that that's going to affect their price?
1: Yes. And I think you've already seen it just with delays of launches that there'll be like a pretty sharp reaction in pricing, you know, the stock moving one way or the other, especially downwards on delays. I think a really fascinating dynamic of being public is, you know, there's the old adage in the stock industry, which is, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news, right? You buy it when you kind of hear that something's in talks or... Happening, And then you sell the stock once the deal actually happens, which is a little bit maybe counterintuitive because you think you'd want to wait until that thing's finalized and then you get the pop out of it. But this is a fascinating application within the industry because the one thing I've been noticing is with launch companies, there'll be a pretty high stock run up before the launch. And then on launch day, even if it's a success, there'll be a sell off afterwards, <laughs> kind of the uh, the other side of the hype and the excitement around the launch. I mean, we've seen this with, with Virgin Orbit, mm-hmm. with Rocket Lab, with Astra. So it's it's very fascinating. I mean, there's a new application of the buy the rumor, sell the news, and it's uh, buy the pre-launch and sell the actual launch, even if it's a success. Wow. Right. It's very, very fascinating to see
0: that applied to spaceflight. I wanted to talk a little bit About space tourism, because obviously that was a very big thing last year. One could argue 2021 was the year of that, you know, space tourism took its hold in the industry. And where is Blue Origin at right now? They've had quite a few successful flights with passengers, and we're not hearing much about. What's next? And I know that they are developing uh, the BE-4 engine, which will power New Glenn, their next rocket. And that engine is also going to be used on ULA's next rocket, Falcon, And it's been delayed. Michael, are you tracking this? What's the situation at Blue Origin right now? Because they've obviously had, apart from their success with these space tourist flights, they have had public issues when it comes to people leaving and, you know, toxicity in the workplace and just developmental problems with their technology so like where's blue origin standing uh as we start this new year
1: well yeah they're in a quite interesting position right where new shepherd is you know a, a, in many ways a success and they're kind of on a diving board right now in terms of being able to jump and and maybe do six human space flights with new new shepherd this year really get into a nice rhythm there but when we talk about the future of the company it's you know new shepherd is a technology testbed in in most ways and be4 is c- truly the critical issue now it's the, the losses of personnel cannot be understated i mean the the people who have left the company and and just kind of the silence the company's had around how it's driving forward how it's resolving these be4 issues i mean it, the company's always been quiet but the the fact that they're under the pressure from, you know, not just the media, but from United Launch Alliance to deliver. I mean, we've seen Tori Bruno talk several times pretty candidly about being dissatisfied and and just saying like, hey, we're looking forward to you guys, you know, getting this thing out to the pad. We need these engines to work, right? And so right. B4 is absolutely the the crux of the company's future right now. Obviously if B four doesn't work Jeff has so much money that you know the, the interesting dynamic is that the company wouldn't necessarily go under. It's not like another company where it has like a key product right. that doesn't work and then all of a sudden it just disappears off the face of the party. They sell off their assets. Yeah. yeah so uh, it's just a question of how do they write the ship and where do they go into 2022? I think in a lot of ways this this year could be seen as a fresh start for the company, but that the, the reporting I did in 21 obviously showed that there was a lot of dissatisfaction all the way to the very top. And the CEO level, you know, Bob Smith is still running the company. So It's, you know, that, that aspect hasn't changed, but they've lost some key executives, some VPs underneath there, you know, Clay Mowry leaving just over December was another huge loss for them. Right.
0: And that was just Clay leaving and going over to Voyager space holdings that, you know, that came as a surprise to many of us. Right. Because of the big, you know numbers of people that left just like a month or two before to see that happen again to start
1: the new year was not a good sign certainly i mean obviously he he did a lot in terms of selling new glenn getting payloads lined up for that rocket but you know how long do those payloads stick around for new glenn now with other launchers coming online i mean it's uh, I am very curious, like everybody, to see what happens on their propulsion side, because the BE4 is absolutely the thing they need to get right in the beginning of this year. And, you know, you could see the dominoes start falling pretty quickly in terms of payloads leaving, in terms of you know, the the contract with ULA going sour. But there are good signs out there. I mean, I'd say like the Orbital Reef program is really interesting. It obviously has some very notable backers beyond Blue Origin itself, which I think is very fascinating. But once again, with the private space stations, you know, it's kind of this aspect of uh, everyone's trying to figure out how much money NASA is willing to give them for their various station. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, as much as NASA could be an anchor tenant, these programs can't have NASA alone to fund them, and so it, I really am going to be looking to pressure and, and find out as much as I can on how much skin these companies are willing to put in the game on the private space stations, because that's you know, if 2021 was the year of space tourism, the 2020s I think are going to be the 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 decade of you know living in low Earth orbit, and what does that research look like, and and trying to beyond the international space station which has been such a incredible servant for now over 20 years
0: and thank you for bringing that up the iss has served us proudly for so long i personally and many others believe it should be awarded some kind of peace prize or nobel peace prize or some kind of recognition and obviously there's been recent talk i think the white house and nasa put out a press release last week that they intend to have discussions on extending the life of the iss michael correct me if i'm wrong was it 2030 2035 something around yeah, that
1: 2030 i mean i think that okay. it, it, it kind of almost is being talked about at least uh, from a nas perspective is now a given that yeah. hey we can you know feasibly extend the life of the state station another eight years and With the way the commercial LEO destinations program is developing, NASA said as much earlier this month that, look, we don't expect us to be able to buy services from these companies until 2028 timeframe, which I think is a pretty fair and realistic expectation, even though some of these guys expect to be in orbit in like 2025, 2026. I think that's pretty reasonable from NASA to to look at it from a kind of services perspective in that way. And, right. and that is the way the future is. How do these companies kind of start to fill the gap and building the space economy from a habitat perspective?
0: The amount of money that was already awarded to continue the study for these different companies and their space stations, it was something like three hundred million or something, right? Yeah, it like was
1: ballpark, you know, near to four hundred. But yeah, I mean, okay. it was basically so, a to compare so, for everybody. Yeah, and when you
0: when you think about that. That's absolutely nothing right. um, when it comes to uh, building a space station. And I, I like to remind people that out of all the human technology that we've built, the I International Space Station is the most expensive project in history. So keep that in mind, um, space station companies, if you're listening. Yeah. I also want to bring up really quick, there's a lot of companies emerging. There's a lot of companies that have been around for a while. Nothing is guaranteed. And nothing says that harder than a, a story that we barely talked about. I mean, the community the last couple of weeks is that Bigelow Aerospace has transferred the ownership of Beam. Beam is a, a module that is currently attached to the International Space Station. It's the first privately built module that it has daily use on the space station. And it's kind of used for storage. It was only supposed to be used for one year. But the technology worked so well that they kept extending it beyond each year. Uh, Funny enough, Beam launched on CRS-8, which was the first time SpaceX landed a Falcon on a drone ship in the Atlantic Ocean. Or or it was the first time uh, they landed in the ocean in general. But Bigelow is a controversial figure, Robert Bigelow, the founder of the company. He was a hotel mogul, real estate mogul who really wanted to start a space company one day for various reasons. And I think that the company had a lot of trouble during the early Trump era. They did bank a lot. The company banked on Trump administration helping them out in the space industry, which didn't work out. They lost a couple of their early contracts with NASA to do processing on the space station, to hold payloads on the space station, et cetera, et cetera. And BEAM was obviously a success. But regardless of having a module on the space station, which is an incredible thing, Bigelow folded in the early days of the pandemic. And now they've transferred BEAM, this whole module, back to NASA. And NASA awarded a contract to ATA Engineering a company in San Diego, California, to manage the beam. And I think it's starting off with like a quarter million dollars or something. But doesn't that show you like Bigelow was a billionaire. He still is. He is a mogul. He had something attached to the space station since 2015. And that company does not exist today.
1: Yeah, that does really show the risk in any of these kind of, you know, I'll say single source funded projects where you have someone like that i mean we saw this with straddle launch right with the mm-hmm. you know untimely passing of paul allen the unfortunate i obviously you know it's it's great that the company was sold and the assets you know still being used and developed i be in a little bit of a different direction now but yeah I, i've been curious why we haven't seen like an acquisition of the at least the bigelow ip i mean they had some right. very interesting technology in there and We've seen a couple different companies already start to go towards inflatables. I mean, Axiom—they right. announced this, you know, yeah. uh, inflatable entertainment studio that's supposed to be, yeah, you know, where they film the Tom Cruise movie. Mm-hmm. Sierra Nevada Space has their Life Habitat, which is a huge inflatable. So obviously, right. this is not a technology that is seen as like, oh, there's a one-off. Like clearly, there's right. a ton of potential in there. So I honestly was pretty surprised that with Bigelow stepping away. He didn't sell his assets, at least as far as I can tell. I mean, maybe they were quietly acquired elsewhere, but I did not ever see confirmation. And and now the only thing we've heard really is this kind of transfer of more of operations than anything else.
0: It's very strange. And uh, I know that our listeners right now are thinking the same thing I'm thinking is, is Robin going to bring up the UFO thing? And I am. I'm just going to say it real quick. Robert Bigelow is a very controversial figure, and he is involved to some degree, in the national UAP investigation that involves the Pentagon and, and Harry Reid, who is no longer with us, but yeah, I, I don't know if those two things have anything to do with each other. But you know, if you know, shoot us an email. <laughs> no, no, I was, I was <laughs> Michael, would you do a UAP scoop one day if you had it? Oh, would yeah. CNBC be mad? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what would move a market more <laughs> than um, like alien technology suddenly existing, and then like SpaceX is not at the top of the food chain anymore? Right. whoever
1: just acquired the alien te- to- technology—that's <laughs> the person. Talk about uh, wanting to IPO immediately. That's a that's a hell of a technology jump.
0: Let's talk Hollywood a little bit. We've all been talking about Tom Cruise for a couple of years since Jim Bridenstine needed to tweet that story out from his personal Twitter account. You're a real one, Jim. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we look, love you I'm for just, that.
1: <laughs> finally confirmed it. That thing had been a rumor for months. And- <laughs> it's
0: been a rumor for a long time. I think I tweeted last year that he, Tom came over to Hawthorne to SpaceX headquarters to try the suit, which he did. And I'm still going to get in trouble again for saying that, but it happened. And I do hear that this flight really wants to happen. As folks know... Supercluster was born out of A24, a, a film studio. And I personally worked at Disney many years before that, before I joined A24. We do, I do have somewhat of a, like, I you know, I, I I call Michael for business information. I do. When it comes to Hollywood numbers, I know a couple of things and I do want to put it out there. And, you know, Axiom, we love Axiom. We love working with them. We think their project is awesome. But I do want to talk some Hollywood numbers real quick with you, Michael. This is the only time that I get to Throw some numbers at you. Hollywood movies, they're expensive. (laughs) This is how crude this is going to be. They're so expensive in every bullet point that when I think of a reason, a marketing reason for filming a, a movie in space, here are the reasons. One, it'll be the first time someone does that. The Russians beat us. And Yusaka also beat us because he brought his assistant which that didn't get enough news, Michael. The first assistant to go to space. <laughs> we are gonna be noting that in the astronaut database about assistance. But this assistant was also a filmmaker. So you've had a Russian filmmaker, a Russian actress already, Yusaka, who he brought his assistant filmmaker, who is producing a documentary for him, part of his training for, you know, eventually flying on Starship one day. But, you know, when I think about all these things already being done. And then I I look at the bill for flying Tom Cruise and Doug Liman. Doug Lyman's one of my favorite filmmakers. He's incredible. There was a discussion on Twitter the other day about Edge of Tomorrow. We love Edge of Tomorrow, Michael. Uh,
1: Edge of Tomorrow. So, here's a little thing that I learned. I, I meant to tweet about this, but that my whole theory about, you know, Edge of Tomorrow 2 is, you know, the film that Lehman and and Tom Cruise would want to make in space because Emily Blunt said it was too expensive to make the sequel, which obviously yeah. makes a lot of sense if you want to do it in space. That would make sense. It's <laughs> yes. expensive. Anyway, I tweeted that out and I was like, talking to my wife, you know, telling her about this theory. And she's like, what's Edge of Tomorrow? And I went, oh, no. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. naturally that evening, last week, we watched Edge of Tomorrow for our our little movie. Fantastic so movie. She loved it. Yeah. She blew her mind. It's, it's such a great film because I, I hadn't watched it in probably three or four years.
0: Yeah, it's, it's highly underrated and it's criminally unseen. So if you haven't seen Edge of Tomorrow, it's based on a comic book called I Think All You Need is Kill is the name. But either way, it's, it's a really, really great movie. It's one of the final performances of Bill Paxton, who starred in Terminator, Aliens, and uh, he's incredible in the movie. And Tom Cruise is really great in the movie. I did some poking around and I heard that is since you put your theory out there, Michael, I did do some poking around. It is an original script, oh. that they wrote, yeah. yeah, so uh, that's oh. all I've got right now that it's an original script, and Doug is writing it himself, and he should be at his second draft right now, okay, if I trust my sources, and uh which I do, and I still am doubtful, and I'm not talking about any one company or launchers or anything like that. I'm talking from a strictly making a movie perspective, so I'm assuming that the Doug. Lyman and and Tom Cruise flights on Dragon will be at least twenty million, or or ten. Even okay, if, if, even if it's ten million each, which I don't, you know, it's going to be more. The time aboard the station, which is in the tens of millions, well, you're talking about a bu- movie budget just for the travel. Right. And training right. and suits. And like, I just, when I think of how Hollywood acts and how they've ha- acted for a century, I just don't see a movie studio like Warner brothers or Disney, even putting $70 million just to get just into logistics, because then they still have to f- make the movie, edit the movie, market the movie, which is in the tens of millions. Now, what could, you know, help with this one, one, The Church of Scientology, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) they have the money for this and their religion and their culture for them to have Tom Cruise go to space would be an incredible thing for their organization. And that is an objective take on that situation. I also think that Tom Cruise has the money in the bank to do some of this as a producer. And he does produce the Mission Impossible movies as an executive producer. So if he's the executive producer on this film... He could throw in 30, 40 of his own money, million dollars of his own money to make this movie. So that's my take. Michael, like, what do you think about this situation? Is, am I being like backwards? Is there some kind of economical case to be made for sending an entertainer to space or filming a movie in space?
1: I I think you're onto something there that, like, the cost, you know, structure absolutely needs to be something where, you know, a studio is not picking up that whole tab, but right. I mean, we've seen horrible movies with huge, huge budgets be made. Oh, and that is our style here. That's yeah, that's the name of the business. Yeah, yes, <laughs> I, I guess my own take is like I can I can actually see realistically that if you know, say, they covered half the cost through some outside investor and Cruz's personal penny or whatever, right? that a a studio would sign on to it from the perspective of like one of the most expensive movies ever made and it was made in space you know like that's a good marketing tagline and (laughs) that could have enough legs to get it across it is still like such a kind of long shot it is a long shot and and you have the kind of practical problems of like what happens if the launch is delayed or the module isn't finished in time or mm-hmm. you know they can't launch what if craft if services so is late
0: cuz like the most important thing on a set is lunch <laughs> so what happens then <laughs> you know like, so i have a million questions although i'll never doubt the vision of bringing anything to space i think when you're talking about normalizing space travel and making space part of everyone's lives in a certain degree you have to believe in some kind of future where All industry has a role in space or has a place in space. And I think the early incarnations of these things are going to be somewhat doubtful and somewhat sketchy to some degree, but they they're likely to happen. And what we're seeing with the launch industry and the space industry is there is, you know, no matter how deep that curve is at any certain point, every time you see a launch, every time a person launches to space on a private vehicle, there is a curve of that becoming more sustainable. Sometimes you don't see it. Sometimes it's too flat. But over time, it goes down. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Michael, I want to end this podcast to talk about 2022, what people are looking forward to, you know, what, what's what got people excited? And I guess excitement is value, right? So what is looking valuable over the next year? I know everyone's talking about Starship. Are you excited about Starship? I know that you've been covering SpaceX for so long. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to shout out, you did a really great video a couple years back where you went through their history. It was one of my favorite Thanks, man. Uh, recaps of, of SpaceX. You and I covered Inspiration4. We were down at Kennedy and visited pat 39A together. Uh, was that your first time at 39A?
1: Yeah, on on the actual pad itself. And you know, yeah. shout out to Robin here for actually giving me the the full runaround and, and really showing me what you know where to go, where the best pictures are at. Like it was it was a great experience. It was awesome.
0: It was really fun to be down there and just to see that mission and uh, Inspiration Four was really great. And I think that seeing four people like that go to orbit and back was really cool. But I want to mention Jerry. Jared, real quick. He is the founder of Shift4 Payments. I had no idea about this company. I'm sorry, Jared. <laughs> uh, I love you. No idea about this company. And then y'all did the launch. I was there. It was great to be a part of it. And then I, I think a couple of weeks later, I stayed at the, my girlfriend and I stayed at the Soho Grand in in, in the city and they used shift 4 for all transactions and i was like yeah if you look around there you are. The payments are like if you look at all the little card readers and stuff shift 4 is all over the place it's everywhere now i'm seeing them everywhere now and it's a pretty cool thing to see that connection cuz that's a thing that people use every day and they launched on spacex and it was really cool to see how that mission came together but michael we've got a few minutes here what are you excited about for 2022
1: so I'd say the first thing that I'm, I'm excited about is that NASA planned visit with like the leadership to go down to Boca Chica and check out Starship. I, I'm really curious to see, you know, especially with SLS, you know, being so close around the corner on on its first orbital launch and, right. and going to the moon, that, you know, how NASA embraces Starship to what degree, what what they think. You know, obviously, they've had plenty of personnel down there. They've had astronauts visit Boca Chica. It's going to be very interesting. So I, I personally hope to be there when, when NASA, you know, uh, tours the facility and, and takes a look for themselves. That's a big one. Obviously, that's kind of attached then with the first Starship orbital launch. That's going right. to be a, a massive deal, and, and we'll take a look at that. I'd say the other thing I'm really excited to see is we, we had this, you know, rush of specs all come, you know, bring space companies public. Now, obviously, the markets have turned a little bit, interest rates are rising, it's been hurting growth stocks. Some of these space companies are getting, you know, kind of slammed alongside of that for, you know, market concerns outside of the company itself. But obviously, right. when you're pre-revenue or, you know, only have a, a little bit of revenue, it's it's quite hard to, you know, sustain an investment case in the public market. So I'm excited to see, you know, how, how and which companies just are able to scrap through, able to get new momentum underneath where these space stocks go? I mean, these pure plays that are in the marketplace that a lot of people are waiting for years to come online. I mean, you got Planet and Rocket Labs are, are two very interesting you know, companies from a stock perspective. So it's going to be fascinating to see you know, how they deliver their earnings, what their style is as a public company, how they continue to, to deliver and. And uh, you know, build on the foundation that they have. So uh, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, I'm not—I have zero, you know, expectations that everyone's going to make it. I mean, we have a couple of these stocks that are already trading close to two or three dollars, which is uh, kind of a danger zone. You know, you start getting closer to getting delisted by an exchange, which is not a happy place to be. So it's going to be fascinating from a reporter's perspective to to track and see. What works and what doesn't, because a lot of these companies are are out there now, and and that's that's an interesting thing to happen, and it's it gives us way more insight into who the companies are. They you know they have these mandatory SEC disclosures, so we have way more of an, a sense of how things are going on on a regular basis. So I, I think that's gonna be a, a big kind of almost coming into one's own sort of way, like who has the legs to survive in the public marketplace and then what that means for everyone else that's kind of in the wings and, and getting close to going public.
0: It'll be interesting to see there's so many players now. So much to cover. We could never, we would have to do a six, seven hour podcast to get <laughs> yeah, there. <it> we would <laughs> uh,
1: just this week's business news. You, you and I absolutely could do a six or seven hour podcast. We have like just us at the end of it. No one listening.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we would have two listeners. We do need to shout out Bergen Bagels to end this podcast because less Bergen Bagels, best bagels in Brooklyn. They do not sponsor this podcast, but we are open to discussion. (laughs) They have really great garlic cream cheese that when I eat it, people leave the subway car. It's that strong. It's pretty strong. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, We hope to uh, have you again in the future. And I hope to be joining you down at Starbase very soon for hopefully either a senior NASA event or a launch
1: of some kind. Well, one or the other, you know, I'm looking forward to being down there as well. Just, you know, make sure you eat the garlic cream cheese before your flight. Way before my flight. Thank you. you. Got it. They don't let me and JFK with that.
0: <laughs> and thank you to our listeners. Michael, how
1: do people find you on Twitter? At The Sheets Tweets is my handle on Twitter and on Instagram. You can also follow me on LinkedIn. And if you look to stock people, you can go check out my Reddit profile. But I can't guarantee it's all space stuff because I do like, you know, everything else in the world, Premier League, soccer, surfing, whatever, you name it. I'd say I, I enjoy it out there. So Reddit's yeah. a little bit of a different beast. But hey, those are my socials. Thank you so much, Michael. And thank you for your time, buddy. Appreciate it, Robin.